and also mm. talking about talking about talking about the podcast. <laughs> it's for the podcast. We have our first Geisteswissenschaftler. <laughs> yeah, just to to open that mise en abîme in a verbal way. For <laughs> Excuse me, what, what did you just say? <laughs> that sound is also a bit dangerous podcast, <laughs> especially if we're gonna talk about yeah, like to taboo noises. Yeah. Welcome to the ACIP podcast, the official podcast of the Association for Critical and Interdisciplinary Thinking. We have a somewhat more relaxed intro now, but we are still hoping to provide you with thought-provoking and stimulating conversations with researchers from all kinds of backgrounds and from all over the world. As always, you can find out more about us at www.acid-science.com. And now, without any further ado, let's jump right in. Hello, I'm here with Sven Plochin. Hello. Um, it's always a bit arbitrary to, to, to start recording after we've already hung out for a little bit, but we decided to have as a icebreaker the first question to, to ask Sven, what, what is funny about jokes and fast jokes in, <laughs> in particular? Yeah, this is going to get scientific. <laughs> this is going to get really scientific. Yeah. No, um, okay, so just as the icebreaker, I would... I would yeah, give the answer that jokes or jokes about farts or farts themselves are funny because they are somehow inconvenient or um, they are uh, they are covered by shame usually culturally as well as individually. So if you do fart or if you talk about farting just like we now also giggling like school kids mm -hmm. um, for one you need some sort of like social corrective to assure that it is still not completely normal to talk about farts or to fart. So by laughing, you kind of fulfill the ritual of breaking a norm and then someone laughs to mark the very action as a sort of breach of norm or breach of taboo for that matter. And then also, of course, it is pleasurable to explicit something that is always in everyday life, some sort of suppressed. So it can give you a feeling of deliberation and freedom and kind of a, a valve-like release of aggression to like with the same aggression that you have to suppress the your whole farting existence <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that exact same aggression is, is uh, released at the moment of, uh, of farting <laughs> but it doesn't just go for farts obviously so that's why it, it might be funny if somebody gets kicked in the balls in a sitcom or if somebody makes a vulgar joke or mm. if somebody just pulls out their dick or <laughs> virtually anything mm. that is usually controlled or suppressed in, in everyday life. I know I sound very mm. Freudian, but it's just because the <laughs> idea derives from Freud. <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah, there were a lot of things in there already that we could delve into from a more like, formal scientific perspective. Um, maybe just to illustrate for our listeners why you are so interested in these taboo topics and from which kind of perspective from the perspective of language um, and the study of language and how taboo breaking works in kind of in a linguistic context and um, what kind of research you are doing there and how you, you came to be, mm -hmm. um, how you became a researcher in, in that field and mm -hmm. what motivates you to, to look into these topics. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Mm -hmm. So I think for one, obviously like, like everyone, I find it kind of exciting to mm -hmm. <laughs> talk about and, and research about taboo topics. I mean, everybody finds it somehow exciting because it's not at all profane 
So it is either super disgusting and repulsive or super attractive or both at the same time. Yeah. Probably the latter in most cases. Mm. So I'm not free of those effects that I'm researching myself, obviously. And then on a more intellectual level, it was kind of a defiant act, I would say, because I've always, for example, I've always liked punk rock and battle rap and that kind of youth culture, like um, the kind of oppositional culture to the parental main culture. Mm. And I've always, or especially when I when I continued my studies, I found it some some kind of ridiculous how poorly effects of certain language is just anticipated but stated as a fact. I mean when we when we went to school we had the problem with video games, I guess. People there was some horrible school shooting and people found out that the specific school shooter had, for example, Counter Strike on their computer and then they just draw the causation from violent video games to violence in real life. But that can be a satisfying answer or at least that is not a method that you should that you should apply in any scientific research. So, but since I'm not a researcher in video games or anything like that, um, my concern goes for language, but also in an in a artistic area. So what I'm looking at is German battle rap that is being criticized for having a bad influence. And while it's obviously it's fair enough to be concerned about that, it's obviously, but even on scientific or pseudoscientific articles, you can just read assumptions about how that would affect anyone without any sort of concern of, with regards to how could you actually find out how that could affect any listeners. So that's what I wanted to do actually in my master thesis is to actually look into what are the mental correlates of how certain taboo breaches actually affect the, the recipients. So yeah, there I think there main example of taboo breaking you, you looked into was more specifically the in Germany the Echo Preisverleihung where two famous German rappers were awarded the, the Echo but it was later determined or like pretty soon afterwards was found out in quotation marks by the public that they had made um, allegedly anti-semitic comments and um, like a lot of uh, I don't know how you want to call it racist misogynistic like all of the bad things in quotation marks <laughs> used a lot of these um, expressions on their album and uh, consecutively there was this huge outcry the public was um, angry for them getting the price and that price doesn't even exist now anymore because it was completely um, yeah, abolished, abolished out I of, guess out of yeah. existence because there was this really this friction between the taboo topics um, discussed on this album and the like the general public the, the German public represented by, by this echo prize for, for these musicians that really didn't know how to handle uh, was really yeah, collapsed internally by the kind of pressure, the friction caused by this, by by these different elements, by this taboo preaching. So I think it's really fascinating to like to to, to look into what actually causes these taboos, why there's so much potential in them, why this taboo breaking actually happens, um, um, from like a psychological perspective as well. Why why are human beings so drawn to taboo breakings, and why at the same time the society is so horrible at handling them and really and talking about them and. Yeah conceptualizing them. So um, there were a couple of things already. You mentioned the, the Freudian perspective that taboo breakings are really in some way correlated to the psychological element of aggression and autoaggression as well. Um, but before we, maybe before we get into the details of taboos, can you 
define in a broad sense what a taboo actually is. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. yeah, that is that is actually as always, it's almost the hardest part of the work to define what you're actually talking about, at least in, in humanities. Um, so usually taboos are concerned with something that that may not be said or done, but unlike other prohibitions, it should also not be thought even or even mentioned. So it is a sort of um, permission to touch something. So it was imported from Polynesian um, islands by James Cook in his journals. And it's still, maybe maybe that's why, but maybe not, but somehow it still has that kind of mana-like magic to it, the taboo. So it is sort of irrational, but also not. <laughs> so, so mainly, unlike any other uh, prohibitions, it cannot be written down what is taboo and what is not. There cannot be some sort of canon. Is that a, an English word too? Yeah. Canon? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There cannot be like the book of rules of words you cannot say because mm. in order to write that book, you would have to in some way say the words. Mm. So there's also that famous, was it George Carlin? Was that his name? That famous uh, comedian who yeah. just enumerated all the words that you're not supposed to say yeah. on, on air, on air. Mm. So that's sort of the meta level of taboos why also people are afraid of saying the n-word including me so obviously it is some sort of awkward to to say the n-word that's why people just say the first the first letter and then word because they they're not afraid only to use it so to do some sort of action with their words but they're also afraid of talking about the action you someone might do with that word so they're afraid of mentioning the word so that's a big difference between taboos and other sorts of prohibitions is that they are not codified and therefore like some other social social norms they're highly dependent on the context so a culture is not only defined by its rules but also and maybe even more crucially by the rules of breaking those rules and the same goes for taboos so obviously some words are taboo but there are rules within which you can break the taboo safely without being sanctioned that might also go back to the farting introduction. <laughs> there's some context where you can fart, but then people have to laugh to kind of, because you know it might be okay in some kind of certain environment, but then you have to kind of sanction it by laughing about it, by releasing the tension inherent in the act of, of breaking the taboo. Yeah, there's, I mean, there has to be some sort of social corrective mainly, but I mean, it can be more or less awkward to, to just drop a fart in a room full of people. I mean, if that room is full of, your friends, especially if they have the same gender, I guess, mm. then it, had a, it has a whole different effect. Mm. And if Eminem, for example, gets on stage and puts his buttocks to the microphone mm. and farts into the microphone, that is a whole, a whole other thing than if someone is just farting like more or less by accident. Yeah, it's like Yo-Yo Ma playing the cello and dropping a fart on, on stage. <laughs> so I mean, that's maybe a nice point to Kind of transition into this connection between taboo breaking and subculture because Eminem obviously is, is an artist that represents a very different subculture than people like Yo-Yo Ma that represent this world of classical serious music and rap is always associated to a certain degree with kind of rule breaking with subculture with an opposition to the, like the the main culture that determines a certain set of rules that are there to be broken by the subculture. So um, yeah, w what roles do taboos lay in, in, in a subculture like gangster rap. Mm -hmm. I think mainly they are just a, a great tool because 
I mean, they would be even a greater tool if they're spelled out and if they, if you have like a book of things you ought not do in main culture. But I mean, since every person who defines themselves as part of some certain subculture is also socialized in main culture, that's why it's the metaphor of main and sub, obviously. Mm -hmm. They know all the taboos. They know what you should not do. Eminem knows that barfing and farting into a microphone is not considered as polite or okay, or even merely okay or anything. But he does he does it not despised, but because of that. So the use of that is that to repulse everyone who doesn't who doesn't yeah so to say understand it. I think we we have to start on a more local level to. To actually appreciate that <laughs> and maybe it's way to to try to appreciate eminem farting into a microphone but for example let's just stick to the example of farting uh, you could you could do anything even a sexist joke or anything if you if you make that joke about farting for example and someone laughs then you have a special connection to that person because there is some sort of bond because you're closer to them than you are to any public person who doesn't Know you because in front of them you would not dare to make the joke and it wouldn't work either they would not laugh probably so taboo the ritual of breaking a taboo and the subsequent laughing is sort of um or the successive laughing laughing is sort of bonding between people and if you do that on a, a little larger scale like for example at uh, at washing places where women um had mainly women or only women had to wash clothes then they were just among each other and then they could talk about anything and make sexist jokes and make vulgar jokes and all that and then they could feel a special connection and anybody who would walk by would hear the the vulgar talk and would also get like funnily or wittily insulted to demark the in-group from the out-group so you have the same when you when you crack jokes with your friends whoever is just passing by and doesn't understand it or who does not laugh or who even reinforces the normal sanction mechanisms that apply to for example sexism if it is not considered a good joke they mark themselves as outsiders of their respective group so taboo breach like ritualized taboo breaches um deliberate taboo breaches have that use of demarking in group and out group and you can extend that to a larger scale to form like a whole subculture especially in, in explicit opposition to a main culture. But then obviously you have all the all the problems of the medial transport of your message that might not be considered as a ritual anymore. So it might not be considered as some sort of joke. And if we stick to the example of the sexist joke, people might think you're an actual sexist and not actually making fun of sexism. So, and I, I believe that that is where most of the tension comes from because Sexist jokes have existed forever, but obviously we hear more of them because for one, sexism, sexism itself is a, a bigger issue than it used to be. And secondly, if, be it sexist jokes or racist jokes or any kind of joke, actually, um, they just get distributed medially way more and way in way more advanced ways than they used to be. So chances are high that they are reaching people who have, who do not at all understand from the context that something is intended as a joke. And so they have to contextualize it with their usual ways of interpretation, 
which in that case obviously would be sexism or racism. I think there were a couple of things in there that we can pursue in more detail. I think the first interesting thing was the, the example of the washing woman in, in this public square, which really created this specific place in society that was also physically demarcated from other places because it, it acquired that special function much in the same way that the like, church acquires that sacred meaning for for service on a Sunday. But in that sense, also the, the washing square, the, the public place acquired that meaning of being this specific like, outlet of profanity, so to speak, and of deliberate taboo breaking. And there are also other examples of that, for example, um, wrestling, that we can also talk about in more detail, wrestling and um, to the carnival, this ritual of, of people going out on the streets and being drunk, and in Venice, this, um, this what do you call it, like, carnival as well, where people were just wearing masks and running around the streets drunk, and everyone was like, profane and having sex with everyone else. And, like, no one knew who was involved in, in this frenzy of taboo breaking mm-hmm. and I think that seems to be like a specific property of, of taboo breakings that they used to be at least tied to a specific places in society and also in the subculture there existed these specific places that really shut them the process of the ritualized taboo breaking that you mentioned off from the, the main culture and as you just mentioned this there's a, we have to take this kind of shift into account of how media is distri- distributed nowadays and also these quotation marks, taboo-breaking media forms are distributed. So can you talk about like, what happened there and mm-hmm. from what perspective you can So this? Yeah, so the, the main thing I think you, you summed up probably actually. So even though, like I said, it's not only about, you don't only have to know about the rules, but also about the rules within which you can break the rules. So even though something is taboo, there is a place in time almost for everything. There is a place in time where you can where you can breach the taboo without being sanctioned. Um, we talked about before the podcast. We talked about Foucault and in, and his um, in his takes on BDSM as a sexual practice, and that might actually be a, a quite good example for because for example, you would never hit the person you love, but during sex, some people might enjoy that. So before sex, you would never do that. After sex, you would never do that. But within the more or less ritual of of your of the sexual intercourse you might hit a woman <laughs> you might hit your your partner whatever the gender and everybody without you don't have to write down that you're not going to hit each other before sex or after sex only during sex and all you don't need that because there's the ritual and it sort of defines itself and within that ritual things are possible and doable that are usually not doable without sanction without someone being hurt for example so that is a a crucial point and i guess before media came around there wasn't a big problem at least not morally because whoever didn't want to take part just didn't if you if you didn't i don't know if you didn't want to go to a kind of appointed brawl for example if some guys just wanted to meet in a, in a backyard and, and and box against, have a boxing match against each other, you just didn't do it. And in the same way, if you didn't like the cussing contests of the of the American cowboys in those days, or the Stanzeln in Tirol, or the Argon in ancient Greece, like so many cultures had those rituals of insulting each other that I just enumerated, and many more, and also the the dissing contest, 
contests, or the playing the dozens, also called, among African Americans. If you didn't want to be insulted, even in a ritual manner, then you just didn't go there. Easy as that seems. So the real problem morally is really kicks in when these the products of these rituals get replicated and distributed in a, in a free market where everybody can buy them and where people do receive them without actually wanting to receive them in, in the linguistic sense of receive. So they do, they do hear words they do not want to hear and they read words they do not want to read. Like in the example with the, with the rappers that won the, the Echo Prize. So, and they, they never agreed to that kind of ritual. And in many cases, they don't even know that it is some sort of, of insult ritual. So they have no way to understand or to contextualize certain, certain um, utterances than the politic. That is at least what Walter Benjamin wrote down, who wrote that sort, sort of ahead of its time article on the replication of artwork, that if you cannot, if, if the artwork loses its foundation in the ritual, where it's where it fulfills its usual or original function, then you have no other way to interpret it, interpret it than in 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 a sort of political or moral way, because that's basically anything that's left. Yeah, so, to 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 rephrase like that that point in a different way is that really this gangster rap music originally derived really from this locally. Um, Con contained space of, of these rap rituals that also have these connections to, to a lot of other examples that mm -hmm. you just just uh, elaborated on, where you have this really this sanctioned space where you can do this taboo breaking, but now suddenly in the, in the age where the artwork is not really constrained to this space anymore, but is reproduced on CDs, on Spotify, on YouTube, then you suddenly kind of dislodge this work of art from, from this constrained space, and then there's really no context. If you hear something on the radio, you, the implicit assumption is that it's part of the mainstream culture. And then if like, taboo breaking arises in the topic of, of this mainstream media, then it suddenly completely shifts its meaning. And you can't really contextualize it in the usual mm -hmm. sense anymore. And then this friction comes into being that people seem to have such a hard time dealing with. Yeah. I think that's where actually the importance of uh, the death of the author kicks in. Maybe we can make a transition there. Yeah, yeah. So, what is important is. Uh, <laughs> there was a beer. <laughs> Talking about taboo breaking. So. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. And so, what is important to keep in mind, and for in, within the humanities, it, that is sort of a platitude, but I think it's neither. It's still important, is that meaning is not produced by the producer of the words. So we have these metaphors of like sender and receiver, which would suggest that the sender puts something with it in a box so that something would be meaning and the box would be a word. And then he sends it to the receiver and the receiver, she would just open the box and find the meaning there just the way that the sender put it in. But obviously that is not at all the case because where would all that cognition be in just an arbitrary sign? So if you read something, all the sense that you get out of it, you do not get out of it. You do not get it out of it. It's in some way it has to always have been inside your head beforehand because where where would it come from? 
And that's really the magical thing about language, actually. And that's why I do kind of understand that people have all these magic beliefs about language, just like taboos, which is a sort of magical belief. But it is, yeah, it's crucial to understand that you are the one who is making the who is making the meaning of the text. So if you feel like, for example, a sex a text is sexist, then that relies on the presupposition that you interpret the sex of certain of certain individuals within the text. So there, there's there's for example, there's been another scandal with um, battle rap songs. In, with um, a feminist association called Tel Femme, who quoted rap lyrics and afterwards um, criticized them as violence against women. And one of those rap lyrics says, obviously I'm, I'm translating and paraphrasing, it says, they hear you scream because thanks to me, there's glass splitters in your loop. And that is being received as sexist. But the presuppositions before that are the the speaking person has a different gender as the person that he's talking about. So we know that uh, the rapper identifies himself as a man, but he's he's not talking about the gender of the victim in that case. But we are just serving that. So that's just one example. And obviously collective identity and social identity is, plays a huge role in that because it's always constructed. And it's always in many cases, even constructed by the people that are criticizing it, which makes it so hard to actually pinpoint actual acts of sexism or of racism. Because, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm leaving my field here, but I, I just think it's an important topic. If you, for example, if you see a white person hitting a black person, you cannot, I mean, you can assume that it is out of racist reasons, but for that, you have to acknowledge that one person has a certain skin color or race or whatever, and the other person has another skin color or race or whatever. So it's always reliant on your own interpretation of the of the situation. And obviously, the same goes even more so for texts which only consist, which consist of nothing but convention. So the conventional meaning, the conventional meaning of the words, and your own cognition. Yeah, and language also changes meaning in in the course of, of years passing and in the course of the society redefining certain terms. Um, in that context, uh, Stephen Pinker talks about the euphemistic treadmill that's also kind of concerned with words that are taboo at a certain point in time and then that get kind of redefined by society as, a, as an attempt to kind of um, take the sting out of the word or to like, really get rid of the taboo, but that usually doesn't work. Can you, can you explain what the what that treadmill actually alludes to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the treadmill is actually an, a quite interesting phenomenon that answers or gives sort of a hint to the question what actually is taboo. And maybe we should have dealt with that in the beginning. But so it, it is not obvious if a concept is taboo or a thing itself is taboo or if the word referring to the thing itself or to the, con to the concept respectively is taboo. So there are certain concepts that are taboo almost in, in, in every culture. That would include feces and body and their effluvia and sexuality and death and sometimes even food. But whenever you find a new word for the specific concept, that word also gets taboo. 
So we have these famous examples of uh, of the place where you uh, where you shit, <laughs> of the place where of the toilet. Let's just call it that. And obviously, the toilet is a euphemism because uh, toilet just has a meaning close to to a washing ritual or to just uh, wash yourself. And before that, we had like locus, which is just simply a place. And also, toilet is kind of gotten kind of vulgar, so you would call call it maybe water WC water closet, but it's just a a closet with water in it. That's not really what you're talking about. So it's really hard to pinpoint the actual thing in the world that you mean. And then obviously you have the restroom, which is not at all the bedroom, and you don't at all rest there. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes maybe. Yeah, you maybe. Spend too much time with your phone. <laughs> yeah, maybe that, or maybe if you're drunk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, some people are known to have accidentally rested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, some researchers argued that since there's always a new word, so since you can circumvent the taboo by just using another word for it, even just a, a foreign word with the same meaning, what is taboo has to be the word that you used to refer to the certain object. And that kind of makes sense, because if you use the new word, the it is not taboo anymore to refer to the same object, for example, the toilet. But then, after a while, if you use the new word for the same object again and again and again, and it gets sort of conventionalized, conventionalized, everybody knows what you are talking about, and it's too explicit again. And then you have to come with a new word. I mean, I think Pinker um, makes the example with handicapped people. And that, that's actually the problem. You cannot talk about these topics without using either some sort of euphemism or politically correct language or feeling kind of awkward if you start to use words like retard or cripple. And that's that's um, actually Pinker's point. There. It used to be cripple and the, the word used to be cripple and there was no problem with it. And then it used to be retard. And that would, was actually sort of the politically correct term. And then it got awkward too. And then you had, I don't know, handicapped. And then you had like physically challenged and, and whatnot. And that is all reliant on the understandable feeling that it is sort of awkward to talk about other person's problems, whatever they might be. So we project that onto the sign. So what is taboo is actually the sign, but not only the form of the word, of the utterance, of the expression, but also the concept that that, found, found, yeah, that, that grounds it, sort of. So the awkward feelings towards the concept just pro project themselves on the expression. And so we have to change the expression again and again until we, which is not a cause of the, of the, euphem of the euphemistic treadmill that is sort of epiphenomenal, in my opinion, until we have made enough progress that we are totally fine with the concept as it is and we can speak about it freely, which I think we have in many cases arrived at with homosexuality because we didn't have to change there have been some, at least in German, there has been the problem, problematization of the word schwul, which means gay. But then gay people just use the word normally, like colloquially. The uh, LGTBQ community that's like part of the name is, the, so the gay is kind of yeah, integrated into the gay community, so to speak. So by that it's kind of legitimized, legitimized as, as an okay word. Yeah, exactly. 
so and now nobody feels awkward at least i i don't feel awkward talking talking about gay people or using the word gay or in german schwul so it seems like the euphemism treadmill has stopped there and that is a pretty good indicator that we don't have any hard feelings or feelings of awkwardness talking about homosexuality at least not anymore in a in a stronger sense than we are, are having problems with talking about sexuality in general yeah there you also mentioned this fascinating phenomena of there being these evergreen topics of, of social taboos that we still haven't overcome to any degree uh, like certain body parts the act of, of going to the toilet for example and then this euphemistic treadmill bringing about new expressions day in and day out and we have this huge assortment of expressions that you can use for the same taboo word like, uh, the example of the the male genital organ <laughs> for example we have these kind of online joke competitions where people try to say like 100 different names for the for the male sexual organ and really there being because it's such a taboo thing there being so many ways to try avoid try to avoid saying the word also by me saying male sexual organ instead of penis <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and by us laughing about it also yeah. releasing the tension again <laughs> so, mm. so meta <laughs> yeah this seems to be like really interesting yeah that, that is really ironic because if you would have a an authority like just a few groups of people who reinforce the taboo which is not really the case i mean it's everyone reinforces it in, in themselves but if you would have that that would be like the perfect resistance against any authority and it is the perfect resistance against your own authority against the own oppression that you are putting on yourself so i know i'm not supposed I'm, i'm not supposed to say certain words so i'm just making fun of that fact that i'm not supposed to say these words and i'm saying a hundred more or less explicit words for the same object to just show myself how ridiculous that idea of circumventing certain words is. And that is, that's Mikhail Bakhtin, the, the Russian liter literature critic, wrote a, a whole book on this. Uh, it's almost the perfect rebellion of the, of the oppressed to just laugh, basically, to just have a, a, a culture of laughter that cannot be fought in any way because it can laugh about anything and just shows just exposes the absurdity and the ambivalence in anything and i think that is actually a very powerful thing yeah and that seems to be something that's always exploited to a certain degree in in art forms is you know, the ambivalence and the tensions inherent in existence and in comedy as well if you consider comedy to not have to be an art form even in stand-up comedy and always also a mirror of, of society i mean in, the image of the jester, the, the court jester, for example, you have this kind of precursor to, to the modern stand-up comedian, even to a certain degree, and that always this this jester being at the boundary of what is culturally sanctioned, and this jester even being the only person that is allowed to make fun of the king without like being the authority of the king being put into question, because it's in that framework of, of kind of stepping out of the taboos, then that humor kind of releases certain tensions inherent in, in that. and. Yeah, so in, in comedy you always play with these, also with these words and with these tensions, and it seems to be something that we really enjoy doing and even need to be doing. So mm -hmm. maybe to, to, to trace back to, to Freud that we talked about in the beginning, he, his whole theory of, of, of the wits, <laughs> like wit and, and the German word wits and the relationship to the, to the unconscious, can you explain what, what this relationship is according to, to Freud and all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think first to the, to the whole medieval analogy, That is actually where I feel really ambivalent about 
the power of humor. Because in one way, it's all, all that we've just talked about in the past few minutes. On an individual level, it has tremendous power to make fun of, I don't know, your own flaws, make fun of something horrible that happened in your life, which you and I are doing constantly, I guess, with <laughs> a kind of dark humor. And it really helps to raise yourself above the problems that you're facing and to, to look at the world in, with all its imperfections, with its ambivalence, its absurdity, its senselessness, and to acknowledge it and derive pleasure from that. That is almost a divine act on an individual level. But then on the on the Marx level, <laughs> if you want to say if you want to say so, on an, on a societal level, it also has some weirdly um, conservative effects, actually, because yeah, like in medieval times, in in at the carnival, you had the opportunity to laugh about your own fears. I mean, there were places that were called hell. And in the end, they, they lit them on fire and laughed while hell was burning, which is a pretty ironic thing, actually. But then also, Carnival sort of had the, had the function to serve as a valve to just release all the pressure that was put on people. So they got one day in a full life of misery. They got one fucking day a year where they could make fun of the king, which didn't change anything, but they got to make fun of the king so their life couldn't be that bad. So they sort of put all of their rebellion and all of their effort in that, except for actually rebelling or actually trying to achieve some sort of social change. So that is the flip side of that. And I myself, I'm not sure what, if, if humor in that sense in a, on a societal level is making more harm or more good, because it has that tendency to serve as a sort of co-optation. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me also of the bread and games uh, of the <laughs> Roman Republic, this kind of also this function of appeasing the, the public by means of even like a, a certain element of propaganda that is inherent in that we, we give them what they need for a bit and then we treat them like shit again. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, from a Marxist perspective, that's, that's not to be desired for the class that is being ruled. <laughs> but yeah, I guess yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting element that you always have this we need to cite Hegel at one point. Or this at least <laughs> used to be the expression dialectical. It's yeah. a dialectical relationship between uh, between the, the culture that is um, dominant and these these kind of rituals that oppose what's happening in the culture by but by that act of opposition, as in the Hegelian self consciousness, really constitute that um, main culture to a certain degree by yeah, reinforcing it through that through that act. And yeah, like, like you mentioned also in these subcultures, these acts of um, like these acts of like reinforcing kind of this element of um, being subculture become even a bit um, yeah frantic or kind of mm -hmm. inauthentic to a degree because that subculture is really subsumed under the main culture. In Germany, for example, a lot of the number one hits and also during the Echo scandal, they were awarded that prize because their album was like the best-selling album, almost one maybe the best or one of the best-selling albums in Germany for the entire year period, not only in, in the gangster rap genre, but period. And Capital Bra, for example, which is mm -hmm. the most famous gangster rappers, um, right now the, the most successful one is the best-selling German artist of all time. Yeah, I, I think he even has more number one single hits than the Beatles yeah. in, in Germany. He's like 19 or something. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So that's that's why I think from the perspective of the, sub, of the subculture of German rap, be it gangster rap or any rap, the, 
that there exists even um, a category named Urban Hip Hop National or something like that was the category where they where they won the two rappers. Mm. That this category even exists in a in the mainstream price for music in Germany. That is the actual problem, not the scandal that followed followed after it. So that is actually the worst that can happen to a sort of, to a subculture that you're so integrated in the market and so integrated in the main culture that you you run you run danger you face the danger to just get subsumed by it but the following scandal around um, the whole breaches of moral norms from the perspective of the main culture that is actually the best thing that could have happened to the subculture's identity because then they could reassert themselves. And that's what I found out reading all those articles from within the subculture. They could assert themselves as sort of the oppressed or sort of uh, people from the periphery. And they could identify the, all their critics as being some sort of bourgeois or old or conservative because they cling to all these values they asserted. So... That was really, not to, to sound too nihilist, but from the perspective of the subculture, that was the best thing that could have happened. It actually saved, I think it actually saved uh, the career of, of Kollega and Farid Bang, the two rappers, yeah. because once you get the echo and all that, I don't know how much you can call yourself a, a gangster rapper or something like that anymore. But yeah, but maybe maybe I'm not right. Maybe I mean, the market is big. There's there's space for, ev- for, for everyone. And that's, that's the problem, right? Because... They want all all those cells in the market. They want to make all that money. So they want to happen in the market. And they want to be on, on Spotify and all that. But they don't want the sanction by the mainstream, by the main culture. And that that doesn't work, obviously. I mean, before there was there was all these uh, streaming platforms, you could have have you could have had a sort of overground in, in hip hop, which was the case in Italy and in Canada, I think, where you have if you could live from just performing and, and, and rapping and you have quite a few listeners and they but they would have to go to special stores to buy your CDs or tapes. And that is actually the, be- the best case because nobody is going to criticize you because then you can just say, yeah, well, then don't come to my concert or don't buy the tape. But that is not possible anymore because anybody can just stumble upon it and then say, oh, that's not that's not all right in that sense or that sense. Yeah, it's interesting that like within the subculture, one of the biggest insults you can give to an artist is that this person has become sellout to a degree. Mm-hmm. It's true in the electronic music scene and the metal sub- subculture and the rap subculture. So, yeah. And Kollega and Farid Bang use that insult too, ironically, because they are, I mean, they are the most mainstream, mm-hmm. or at least in that year, they've been the most mainstream, mm-hmm. but they insult generically anyone as... As commercial mainstream sluts, that's, I think that's <laughs> yeah. that's the would yeah. be the translation. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. diverting attention from from yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe like um, mm-hmm. latently homosexual people who would call somebody else a faggot, yeah, so these, that they don't have to do with their own sexuality. Yeah, these famous examples of, of these American like that like these pre like pastors on public TV, this evangelical people on TV that used to rage against homosexuals, and then mm-hmm. it was found out that they really engaged very actively. Uh, okay. <laughs> there were a couple yeah. of examples of that. In, in yeah, like in, in American Beauty as well. Ah, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, also reminds me of the um, 
interesting parallel with respect to politics. The, the Trump era seems to be over, but there's also this element of really this um, kind of, um, it seems to be a feature of, of the, the, the way Trump communicates, for example, is to, to simply provoke and to simply provoke the liberals, for example, and to, to really oppose them by saying certain, certain things. Mm -hmm. And this whole troll culture that, that mm -hmm. comes from that is really also an attempt to, by, by, by the means of provocation, to kind of create an identity and to do also, it might, might also be a form of virtue signaling or kind of in, in this hierarchy of, of societies of asserting alpha male mm -hmm. um, kind of dominance to, to signal that you can provoke other people. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it connects back to, to this aspect of humor, of like certain people being allowed to say and saying certain things and being allowed to make certain jokes as a feature of their standing in, in the hierarchy of society. Yeah, yeah and then also, uh, especially those subcultures who define themselves among, among taboo breaches, be it battle rap or punk rock or wrestling. I don't know if, if there is a subculture there much, but I guess you could call it that. They all consider themselves in some sense young in, a, in an intellectual sense and male and like not even male, but really masculine in the, in the sense of dominant and aggressive and um, courageous. So I think those, yeah, I think you actually pinpointed it. And I think the, the opposition didn't, if we're talking about Trump, um, I think the opposition didn't really do a, a great job, not only Hillary Clinton, but even before that. I think there was, and there's actually a, a nice book about that by Angela Nagel, Kill All Normies, I could recommend that, mm -hmm. um, which um, which takes, um, which considers that, that before all the trolls, on um, the right-wing trolls, and also Trump could, could have rise, there needed to be a sort of really moral and really serious uh, area around the from which you could from which you could distance so it is only to so for example when when trump made fun of um of a journalist who has some sort of, of handicap i don't know how to say it in english it's always awkward mm. i'm just gonna say handicap maybe i'm pc i don't know <laughs> <laughs> but that could only be that could only be interesting to his voters or funny or courageous or in some sense they have to consider it they have to attribute it in some positive way. Otherwise, they wouldn't have voted for him, right? So that can only be interesting or courageous or dominant or anything like, or funny or anything like that. If beforehand, there has been a very serious culture. Mm. And I'm not advocating making fun of, of anyone in public. That is not the point. But the point is that if you, it is very easy to just act as if you're one of us even as a, as a billionaire or millionaire, or maybe he's broke again, I, I don't know. <laughs> but, I mean, the point was, even if he was so rich, mediocre working class people considered Trump like one of us. And they didn't mean the, the working conditions or, or money or anything. I think what they meant is pretty close to what we talked about for an hour now. It's that he's not afraid to break taboos. And that he's, he makes this kind of show and he doesn't take himself that seriously and he doesn't take anything that seriously it seems yeah. and and that makes him sort of relatable of course in a fake sense but that strategy is not new even in, in medieval times uh, priests have, have done that i've, I've read in, in bachtin at least so it is sort of easy to to 
to appeal to the so-called common people or to the proletarians by just acting in that relatable way of being funny and not not caring and not giving a fuck and saying mm. saying something that you and your friends would say when you're in a bar, but just on a on a public level. And the more serious the the left is in that case, the more appealing it is if some other political figure comes comes across and just doesn't play along with that. And I'm I'm not saying that's a good thing because obviously that is actually a horrible thing. So I'm I feel like the left has to regain the sort of of funny funny take it, it used to have on, on politics at least in Germany in the 60s and 70s yeah that, that has uh, really as a can have a disarming quality because like you mentioned I think one of the issues the left has been struggling with especially in the US but I think globally is that it's become really associated with this PC culture and that PC culture kind of has this aura of like sanctity and like sanctimoniousness that it really has this kind of seriousness about it, that it's taking itself so seriously that it's really easy to buy breaking certain taboos that are mm -hmm. instantiated by this. And I think people, practice. sorry for interrupting, but that's what I wanted to say, actually. I think people are intuitively suspicious of that. Mm. And maybe they don't know why, mm. and maybe I don't know why, but there is something suspicious to that seriousness all the time. Mm. And to that, if we talked about rules and the rules of breaking the rules, mm. for in many cases of PC standpoints, There are no rules for breaking the rules. There is no carnival mm. and there is no stand-up comedy and there are no rituals within which you could break the rules of political correctness. In some cases, not right. obviously not everybody is advocating for that, but it, it seems that it is a, a bigger issue than it used to be. And if you take people, this, um, this valve, if you take it from them, I mean, we, we've talked about the conservative function of that valve. And if you take it for them, from them, then I think the consequences could be could be pretty serious mm. even though it, it's a funny topic but mm. it seems to be pretty pretty important to people yeah that's always interesting that what's funny is always something that is really important to people to be free <laughs> because we are so subconsciously hyper aware of what's what's happening in, in this area and also that and there's really this element of not ha having any uh, kind of yeah, <laughs> moment of, of breathing and relief from from this tension of, of constant constantly being hyper-aware of what you're doing, what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Then that really, in Trump, for example, or in general in the straw culture, the, the act of coming along and really breaking that taboo and not caring about breaking that taboo can... I think that that's a really crucial point because breaking the taboo doesn't imply what you're saying is... Like, if you, if you break the taboo of sexism, doesn't doesn't mean you're sexist. If you're breaking the taboo of, of making fun of handicapped people, doesn't mean you are inherently against handicapped people, whatever that means. And if you're making a comment about like, the, the extreme PC awareness um, around um, racism, for example, it doesn't mean necessarily you're a racist, but you can for just for for all of the other reasons we, we addressed in the last hour, of what, the, what function these taboos have in society, you can just break the taboo for, for the heck of breaking the taboo. Exactly. I think that's kind of the, the real thing you need to understand in the political landscape of today that really taboo breaking has a function in its own and it really if there were a taboo about drinking from glass bottles or making fun of blonde people then Trump would probably make fun it. of that <laughs> and we would do it yeah and it's really not it's kind of it's kind of this layer of meta-analysis that's absolutely crucial for, for understanding parts of what's going on in, in public debate mm -hmm. and it's yeah you probably yeah that's kind of what, what, what the result of your master thesis was as well that in this kind of debate between The main culture that was talking about anti-Semitism in Farid Bang and Kollega and Farid Bang and Kollega really 
mainly breaking using these lines to break taboos to, to just in order to break a taboo <laughs> about about death and, mm -hmm. and suffering in, in general mm -hmm. like they did so many times on on the album yeah yeah so i i think it is that important to people because laughter as, as bachtin writes laughter cannot be used for for fascism or some authoritarian regime because it always resists that it's like the force of of the people laughter because it always exposes some sort of ambivalence that's that's how jokes work right in the in the most obvious sense just in puns in the ambiguity of the single word but it always works in some sort of incongruity or in some sort of surprise or in some way you always have to rethink what you just thought and reinterpret it in another way so that's really the power of, of, of jokes and of laughter that it always exposes some sort of ambivalence and it always shows that nothing is is necessary in the in the epistemic sense that every everything is in is conti contingent so i think that's why it is really important to people to be able to make jokes about everything and that i think that that is actually important also from a conservative point of view even if you want to be if you want people to accept the authority that you put above them, be it political correctness or any other form of authority, then you have to give them a little valve where they can make fun of the very rules that you give them because otherwise they're going to be like, no, I'm, I'm not going I'm I'm to put up with that. Yeah, it's interesting that laughter really in, a, in the philosophical sense as well, that this ambivalence of existence itself. Also in the existentialists, mm -hmm. for example, in Camus, we, we must imagine Sisyphus happy that is rolling up the kind of imagine him as laughing while he's rolling up the hill and the stone up the hill. And in Zen Buddhism also there's this idea of kind of this crazed Zen monk that is just laughing at the, the fact of existence and the fact of it all. Mm -hmm. And from Keats has also this poem, Why Did I Laugh Tonight? Where he's mainly talking about death and <laughs> like kind of this this tension inherent and in how can you laugh in this existence but you laugh anyway <laughs> so, uh, and that's I, I think that's why rick and morty is so funny right <laughs> yeah. because it always puts like a mirror in front of you of how pathetic and worthless life itself is yeah. and that is it's a real sting in your heart mm. but it's really important to be able to laugh at yourself about putting so much mm. putting so much value on your own life and always trying to find meaning in life i mean that's mm. that's the the absurdist mm. crisis in, in Camus, right? That you, you're you always going to look for meaning and you're never going to find it. And that can be a really great source of, of a joke. And that's just another example where jokes and or laughter really help to cope with with stuff that you can can do nothing about. That's, and at the end of it all, what do you have but, but making fun of it? Yeah. Drinking these beers while recording the podcast really changes the mood. <laughs> <laughs> Starting to just slip into that... Melancholic Friday night, what's existence mode? Uh, thinking. Yeah, we had a short um, water closet break. <laughs> now we're going to talk about the like more meta aspects of, of working as a researcher, working, doing doing a PhD, like, investigating interesting topics every day. Um, you, you recently started your PhD. Mm -hmm. How is the research life going? Especially because it's kind of an interesting contrast to the, the guests we previously had here that were more from the like hard science um, part of the sciences and not the, so much the humanities. So what do you do every day and like how does research actually work in your field? I don't know if it's that different actually, but maybe because I don't know anything about the natural <laughs> scientists that you talk that you talk with. But no, uh, seriously, it's 
so far it's it's chill and stressful at the same time but that's probably the answer that everybody would give you so i don't know my usual work day i don't even bother wearing actual pants <laughs> yeah that's a feature of corona times, <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but that, that definitely is a feature of corona because um i started working in august and now we have uh, november right mm -hmm. we do have november yeah we, we, do have november. <laughs> we do and in the beginning it was super chill but i really miss being among people but that's a corona statement not a work statement so back to your question um yeah it, sometimes it feels like i'm not doing anything at all and in the evening i'm super frustrated and not at all satisfied with my work because i've just read for four hours and then thought for two hours and then i've, I've written some stuff and then i've um, did some like actual quantitative or qualitative research but obviously without any results within one day and then I feel like I I just lost lost control over the whole day, which then after a week I realized I did not at all because it was super useful. But yeah, in in, in some moments I I really struggle with what am I what am I actually doing here? Mm. <laughs> Probably that's healthy for research, but maybe it's not healthy for the people that are doing the research. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> doing a PhD is not associated with a great mental health <laughs> yeah but at least you get paid poorly right <laughs> <laughs> look at all the advantages of not having job security <laughs> no future yeah <laughs> but that aside um so i think maybe one of the in interesting differences between the humanities and the natural sciences is that your work is really the the two hours of thinking after four hours of reading part is really like more crucial in your field because your publications really mostly consist of more conceptual work and more abstract, like not necessarily abstract, but more thinking about new theories and not new analyzing mm -hmm. certain things, but you can do simulations or calculations or like at least in, sometimes you can also mm -hmm. do that, like more, like more of a quantitative approach, but it's more qualitative work and publications for you are really more this journal articles where you look at a certain topic like this gangster rap debate, for example, and really kind of try to understand that from the perspective of a lot of other researchers yeah and i i really do enjoy that because it in some senses it is like just being an author and just writing about what you want to write about but then obviously there are some downsides on that for example that many people don't take you seriously and maybe rightfully so because obviously it, it is all subjective in the end you cannot escape that being a subject obviously <laughs> but then i think as a linguist compared to many branches of philosophy and, and sociology, you sometimes have the advantage of being able to work quantitatively fairly well, I would say. So at least it does make sense if you explain to other people, it does make sense that you can count words and you can count word patterns and you can compare those word patterns within a certain discourse with other word patterns within another certain discourse. And then you can drive your conclusions from that, or at least you have a good enough reason to look into specific texts, which seem to be some sort of, yeah, emblematic for a whole discourse. Can you give a concrete example of that? That's stuff you already looked mm -hmm. into. Um, yeah, but, so I don't know how concrete it's going to get <laughs> because I'm still mm -hmm. in the humanities, but um, one example or yeah, just in general, what we are doing now, for example, where I'm working as a research associate, is that we're comparing the, the, the we're comparing the legislative discourse about um, marriage and family 
with the not legislative discourse, like with the common people discourse, which there are huge corpora, corpora for. And there we can, there are some computational linguistic tools like word embeddings, for example, which are actually designed for finding different actual meanings of the same word. So if you have the word, no, in, in, in English, it doesn't make sense. But can you give me an English um, ambivalent or um, ambiguous term? Maybe. <laughs> in German, I would have said bank. So, uh, yeah. But in English, it would work as well. The sand bank, right? Yeah, I think the, bank also works. So if you have the word bank mm -hmm. and you have a huge corpus with many occasions of the same word, and then there's different meanings of bank as um, an institution where you put your money and bank as just an accumulation of sand on the beach or anywhere, then you could really get that emergent meanings from different texts by using um, word embedding, which I don't totally understand, obviously, because I'm not um, a computational linguist. But how it works is more or less it projects the co-occurrence of words, so the, the other words that they um, that um, that arrive in the context of the same word as vectors, and thereby different patterns, different patterns arise if you have enough texts. Mm. So the one word of the the one meaning of bank, in the one meaning of bank, it would arise more often with the context and within the context of money and economics and all that, and in the other sense, more like with sun and beach and ocean and whatever. And obviously, that's a really trivial example, but that's why I used it as an example. So. If you do the same with marriage, you could actually, you could more or less reliably find this different usages in different meanings of the same word or the same expression, which the users of language are mainly not even aware of when they utter it. So that's a sort of, that's just one example. And uh, that is the kind of uh, quantitative research that you can do as a linguist where you also can just consider words as the more or less best mental correlates of actual cognitive processes that you cannot just look at from the outside. The, actually, I was starting my research, I was actually surprised how many people really think highly of, of linguists for that, for that matter. <laughs> because I've always been I've always been like super humble about what we can actually do, and I, I still am. But I think Compared to philosophers and sociologists, for example, we have a fairly good good stance within the humanities. I would say maybe thanks to Chomsky, even though we're not <laughs> we're not doing what Chomsky does at all. But, <laughs> but having the most maybe sided, maybe it was him <laughs> the most sided living person. Yeah, exactly. Since after Freud and Marx or something like that. But I think I think that was probably mainly because of his criticism of of the U.S. foreign affairs. Do you think? I think Chomsky didn't he get like famous before he started being very politically involved? I think you have to have some amount of fame to mm. become politically involved in the first place because otherwise yeah. it, it's yeah. no fun because <laughs> nobody would listen to you, right? If, but, in my perception, it was always like he was a linguist, and I think his theories just came at the right like the right place and the right time mm -hmm. because like, the, that whole emphasis on language and structuralism, post-structuralism, and Yeah, it was really something philosophy was taken by and really obsessed with to a degree. And then having that combination of linguistics, neuroscience, philosophy and Chomsky, something that was just appealing to very interdisciplinary 
like this intersection between love fields. Yeah, true. And also the whole the whole take on it, like um, looking at language as as some sort of natural force. I think that was kind of appealing to people, even though he was not at all the first person to 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 do that take. But yeah, and the whole universalism thing. I think that was kind of just fascinating to people. But do you have any quotables in mind from Chomsky? Because I I don't actually. Yeah, not. I mean, I just remember from from Pinker's attempts to to explain what Chomsky was about that he always made fun of. Like, has anyone actually read the Chomsky papers? They are extremely difficult to understand and extremely technical. And sometimes it's it, it's just passing to, to to linguists why the hell Chomsky acquired the, the level of fame he did. Maybe it's I don't know if there's a good uh, comparison from from physics or something that you have a theory that's really. I mean, in quantum physics, maybe to a degree, but quantum physics is extremely usual, useful from from a technical perspective as mm -hmm. well. But something, a theory that really, in, when you strawman it, it really captures the imagination of a lot of people. Which is, if you break it down in a vaguely correct but not really correct sense, it, it, it's really appealing. Mm -hmm. I think I think that might have been the case with Chomsky, but that might, I think that not do him justice because I think from a, from a technical <laughs> linguistic level, he had interesting and fascinating insights, and he was important for the field. But I I feel like he was way more important for informatics than yeah. for linguists yeah. than for linguistics. Actually, yeah. I don't in our our studies we don't read uh, Chomsky. I've never I've never had to read Chomsky in my mm -hmm. studies. Actually, maybe that's just the, the course of my university I don't know mm -hmm. but I feel like the whole his whole idea of a language being being able to be derived from a few certain axioms and a few universals like grammaticality for example it seemed to have to has worked well for informatics mm -hmm. but for language it for natural language it didn't seem to work that well so I don't know if it's impact maybe was actually bigger on informatics than in the mm. linguistic field. Mm. I think we could, could go on talking for forever, <laughs> but maybe to slowly move towards wrapping this whole conversation up. Um, like what are your future or like near future projects? What are, what are you going to look at and yeah. mm -hmm. what is interesting to pursue? Yeah, I think to, to bridge it a little bit, what you said about certain certain physical experiments or, or theories who got like taken off super simplistically or, or poorly um, and then become popular without anybody understanding them. I, I noticed that there is a tendency for that with linguistics too, with certain platitudes like, yeah, language forms the mind and language just creates reality and all of that. And it does, but I don't I don't buy that I don't buy that anybody understands it nearly as well as they claim. So I, I don't understand it and but I understand it well enough to know that nobody understands it as well mm. as they said. So it, it has that it is easily instrumentalized politically when I mean we talked about political correctness and all that, but it it has that it is that sort of it's become that sort of platitude that if you say something, then you're just delivering the idea, the idea that is somehow within the word, and then you just brainwash everybody that listens to that. And I would like to actually look into that. So my, for now, my, re my research question would be in what sense language actually contributes to social change? Because obviously it does, because all the culture is constituted by language. 
But I think people have a too simple understanding of that in, in most cases. I don't, I don't believe that it is about single words which deliver a certain, a, a certain concept. But I think, I think it's way more complex and I think that is, um, it's many factors playing into it. As we saw in the taboo example, you have a certain word that is taboo, but not the word is taboo, but the meaning behind the word. So the signifier to not the signifier is taboo. Mm -hmm. And people with that naive approach to linguistics and the world try to yeah, alleviate the problem by changing the signifier, by changing the word. But that obviously doesn't work. But that relies on a very simplistic understanding of how the language constitutes reality. Exactly. I think it doesn't work. And also, it's not needed for social change. Maybe it, it doesn't have benefits. I, I don't know. That's why I'm starting the, the research on it. But if you take the example of the sundown, we, we know that the sun is not actually going down mm. on the horizon, but we still use the same word, and it doesn't really hinder us from accepting that the Earth is actually moving around the sun and around itself, and that's why the sun is sometimes there and sometimes it's not. But we still use the same word. And we acknowledge that the concept of a sundown derives from the false thinking that the sun would actually go down and the earth would stand still. But that thinking does not continue even though we use the same word. So there are, mil there are millions examples of examples like that where our language is still like super antiquated and we don't even think about that. So the impact of these antiquated words on our thinking and the, the potential of these antiquated words to actually deliver some sort of antiquated thinking is, I think, hugely exaggerated in many in, in the public and in many publications as well. And I, I don't think that there's enough research done there. At least I'm, I'm, I'm super interested in that field. So that's what I'm going to focus now on. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. I'm looking forward to having you on this podcast again in a couple of months or to, to see what progress you've made and to also talk about these. That's a lot of pressure for, uh, for <laughs> humanities. <Maybe>. Yes, <laughs> we talk in a decade. Yeah, yeah, maybe that. <laughs> we shall meet again. Then you have <laughs> Just kidding. Fair enough. So thanks for, for joining me or joining us on this podcast. And thanks for having me.